I decided that if I was going to make it in this world or not going to make it in this world, it wasn't going to be because corporate um, heads who are all white men were telling me who I could be and who I couldn't. Um, I know that in, in my just my personal life, trying to be somebody and trying to take on the culture and, and suppress my own culture as being something that's not as good at, as opposed to the notion that we all have something to contribute and the idea of, of bringing different ways and different cultures together to make something even better, as opposed to squelching one or saying that one is not the right way. Those diversity reports, they're performative. We formed a diversity council. We de developed employee affinity groups. Um, we have mentoring programs. Uh, we recruit at these colleges and universities. All performative, all actions that don't lead to changing the um, the system. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It's Af Malhotra here again. Today I represent Straight Talk with Af under another auspices and a thesis, which is Diversity Economics Institute. So as you know, I've launched this institute. It's dear to me, personal, and it is something that is super important for us to work on over the coming decade or so. And I will be interviewing thought leaders, inspiring authors, CEOs, uh, champions, activists who are driving this agenda forward for all of us. And this is a collective responsibility. And so today I have a wonderful human being, an author, in fact, twice, um, and a CEO of her own brand that is um, driving change, making meaningful change happen in society and in the workplace. And so today, uh, you know, Mary Frances Winters has joined us on this show. She's been very generous with her time. Over the next hour, I'm going to try and take as much out of her as possible, all of her wisdom and her knowledge, as much as I can. And I want to just say, you know, in 2016, she wrote a wonderful book, We Can't Talk About That at Work. And you can guess what that's about. And of course, go on Amazon, and we'll give you all of these details later and go buy the book. And then in 2020, she decided to come in and write again. And this time, the title is even more profound and prolific, Black Fatigue. And I'll ask all about this as we go through uh, the journey. So Mary Frances, welcome onto our show. And it's, it's a delight to, to have you here today. Thank you for having me, appreciate it. Real pleasure. So as we do in customary fashion, when I start a show, it's very important for us to know who you are and how did you get here? Your personal story, you know, uh, the personal story of someone who is writing these types of books and this kind of business you've launched, of course, has to be um, hurt. And I'm sure, you know, a short space of time is not enough, but give us a bit of a sense of who you are, where, where have you sort of traveled from and how have you managed to get to where you've got to today? Yeah. Thank you so much, um, for that. So I, um, I'm a baby boomer. Uh, I grew up um, in the sixties, um, this, in the United States, the civil rights, um, sixties. I actually, um, grew up in Niagara Falls, New York. Everybody's heard of Niagara Falls. And there are two Niagara Falls, one is on the American side and one is on the Canadian side. I grew yeah. up on the American side, but my parents were actually um, Canadians. I was adopted, actually, at 18 months old. Um, so I don't know anything about my biological uh, family. I, I just know about my adopted family um, from Canada. So I, I, I already felt kind of biracial uh, because right. um, I didn't have the... Um, I did, wasn't growing up with the American kind of Black values, if, if you were. Canada was just as racist and my parents only had eighth grade educations because that's all that um, colored, that was the word that was used back then, that was all that colored um, children, um, you know, were to have. Uh, so I grew up, um, you know, uh, in, in the 60s, and I um, 
the first time I knew that I was different, I was in kindergarten. And a, a little white boy called, uh, the, there were only two black children in the class, um, my best friend, Charlene, the little black kid called us both the N-word. And we didn't really know what that meant in kindergarten, but we knew it was bad, right? We, somehow we knew it was bad. And so the kindergarten teacher comes marching into the coat room because we're both crying. And she said, what are you two girls crying about? And we told her. So she called the little white boy in and she said, your red hair is ugly and your freckles are too. Well, I'm not sure that that's how a child psychologist would have said she should have handled the little white boy. But anyway, now we're all crying. But the point of that story is that's the first time in my life that I knew that I was different and that my difference would make somebody be mean to me. Think about this as a five-year-old now. So a five-year-old mind who heretofore uh, was happy and go lucky. And now somebody says something to the core because of the color of your skin. And so I go home and I talk to my parents about it and they try to explain it to me. And again, I'm five years old and I'm trying to understand this, this dynamic that because I have brown skin and somebody else has another color skin that they wouldn't like me. So the point of the story is that it took me from being this carefree, you know, to being cautious. So already at five years old, I'm cautious because somebody might not like me because of the color of my skin. So now at five years old, I want to change the color of my skin because I want to be like. So I tell that story because I think it is the, the beginning of my activism, if you will. Um, so all through um, school, I, I wrote about, uh, I would write about civil rights icons and we had a, a report to write. I was the editor of my high school newspaper and uh, they would allow me to write about Dr. Martin Luther King, but they would not allow me to write about Malcolm X. They pulled that one. Uh, so if you think of this, this is late. This is the late 60s. Well, he was you know, truly considered a pariah um, back then. Yeah. So I go to college. Well, actually, my guidance counselor told me I shouldn't go to the university that I was accepted at because people like me didn't go to that kind of school. So anyway, I said, well, I'm on scholarship. I've already been accepted. I'm going. So I go and I'm um, very much an activist there because the president of the university said that all of the black students should be at the junior college and shouldn't be at this prestigious university because we didn't belong there. So we took over the administration building and held him hostage for three days. Uh, so this is, you know, I had a huge Angela Davis Afro and you know, I'm, I'm um, very much, um, very much an activist. So um, I, you know, I graduated and my first job is at the Eastman Kodak Company. And I was brought in as a um, what they call a management trainee. And I was doing very well. And they had a program uh, for MBA for people to get their MBA. And uh, that program um, they allowed they selected four people a year to go. I was the first mm -hmm. black person, the youngest person selected, with three other white men. So we go to the MBA program. It's the next executive MBA program. We come back. They all get vice president jobs. So I get to go to talk to this to the uh, top brass at the Eastman Kodak Company. And well, they said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I would like to do what they're doing. Well, you know, that's not what we had in mind for you. So it was a tokenism in terms of sending me, but I did get my MBA. I stayed for a couple of more years and it was subjected to sexual harassment, subjected to just a lot of things. And I decided that if I was going to make it in this world or not going to make it in this world, it wasn't going to be because these, um, you know, uh, corporate um, heads who are all white men were telling me who I could be and who I couldn't be. I would go to work, you know, feeling uh, rather, you know, this sort of schizophrenic almost that uh, right. uh, one boss would say I was too, too this and the other boss would say I wasn't aggressive enough. And so I didn't know who I, who I was. And um, so in 1984, um, almost 39 years ago, I started my own business. I actually started as a market research company doing qualitative and quantitative research because that was my background. 
I had a, you know, come from the MBA program. We were doing at Kodak. Um, I was doing predictive analytics. We were doing competitive intelligence. Um, I actually was in the first um, first department of competitive intelligence. At that time, Kodak had 80% of the market share. They weren't worried about uh, competition. I studied Fuji, and I was the one who told them that Fuji was going to be a formidable competitor, and I almost lost my job for doing so. Um, I've written up in a couple of books about uh, Kodak, about, um, you know, Smugtown USA. And of course, we know Kodak has filed, you know, right. bankruptcy and they're a former shadow of themselves. So I, I, I just felt that my voice, you talk, we were going to talk about people's voices being heard. My voice, you know, truly was not heard. I did this big study on Fuji before there was the Internet. And so I had to right. do it the old fashioned way. And I went to the executive board and told them that Fuji was going to be a formidable competitor the next year. The Fuji blimp appeared in the sky and Fuji film appeared on, on American uh, shelves. They told me that I was wrong because nobody was going to buy Japanese film. And I said to them, but they're buying Japanese cars now. This was, you know, in the 70s. And why wouldn't they buy Japanese film? So anyway, that's kind of my background. Um, you know, uh, always, um, always fighting for um, justice and, and fairness. Um for women's rights, for rights for, you know, people of color, because I live it, you know, I experience it. So my team now is comprised of a bunch of young people who I am, hopefully, hopefully the legacy that I want to leave is I have developed at least a, a, you know, a small group of the next generation who can go forward, bring their authentic selves um, into whatever space that they're in and on, on, and unapologetically be who they are. Right, right. Beautiful. You said a lot of things there, and um, I can't help but think that anyone who listens to this who comes from a, a diverse background, some aspects of your experience uh, we can resonate with. Uh, there are a few things you said there, and I just thought of my corporate life. I thought, oh, my God, it's, um, it sounds like what I went through. And, of course, prejudice and discrimination is executed in very different ways in different parts of the world, right? Uh, I find, and I want to come to this in a second. So and I just want to call something out if it's okay, because there's no hierarchy in racism per se, but I do feel that there are some races, especially people um, from, you know, the Afro-Caribbean background who are black essentially um, have faced a type of racism that my community, the Asians, the Indians, um, haven't quite faced. And I'm calling that out because it's important. And it's important because unless you uh, have some sort of a sense of what it feels like to be uh, Black, to, to feel that generational or intergenerational, as you call it, pain, um, it's very hard to understand. I mean, I've had friends um, that are you know, from the Black community here in the UK when I was a kid, when I was uh, at university and I get it. And we all talked about it and complained about, oh, you know, racist this, racist that, oh, it's because of this. But their stories were different to mine, similar, but different. Mm -hmm. And why I'm saying that to you today is because there are many people who listen to this show, by the way, and all sorts of demographics and all sorts of parts of the world. Um, it's important to, to sort of feel and empathize and sympathize with all of us in different ways. Men have it different, women have it different. People from the LGBT community have it different. And almost, you know, before you started the show, you talked about there was there was a, almost a hierarchy, you know, uh, where you got it the worst and you got it the best. And I felt that, you know, in my time, the, the white man, 
the white man was sort of the pinnacle, like you, there was privilege. And then it all sort of, sort of started to uh, tumble downwards as you, you went through the hierarchies of race and religion and ethnicity and, and everything else that comes with it. At the same time, I feel we're in a really good place with positivity because look at this conversation we're having and we are, we are open and courageous and confident that we want to push this out onto social media without fear, without worrying about what the next person says. That for me is progress. It's not quite there, but I do feel it's progress, which is why I guess you've built your organization, um, the, the, the Winters organization that I'm going to ask you to, to talk about momentarily. But tell me a little bit about um, when you describe the state of play 39, 40 years ago. I mean, it sounds awful, uh, honestly. Um, how much has it changed in terms of your aspirations? Not in terms of the state of play, but for you, 40 years ago, did you believe there was hope? And do you think your aspirations will be realized and your potential will be realized, like you've been saying with the Fujifilm example, or even before then when you were trying to do your MBA? And maybe for your next generation, I don't know if you have family or you know nieces and nephews or those close to you, are you seeing the kind of change that you expected to see uh, or is your opinion different? Absolutely not. I am not seeing the kind of change that, that I expected to see that the world um, needs to see. So I have a daughter. I have a son and a daughter. Um, I'm, I'm widowed. Um, my husband um, died unexpectedly of a heart attack at age 47. Um, he was a CPA at that time, certified, I think you call them chartered public accountants. Yeah, he was a certified yeah, public chartered accountant. accountants. Yeah. Um, and he, at that time, there was less than 1% who were Black um, in, in the country. And um, I, he was a um, director. He worked at Kodak as well. He was a director of fin financial planning and he dropped dead of a heart attack one day. Um, and I think, you know, the, the stress and, and whatnot. So I have two amazing um, uh, kids who um, are not kids anymore, who went through some of the same things. So my son, who is um, a professor um, at Duke University, a tenured professor uh, at Duke University, uh, he went to Harvard, Duke and Princeton, his PhD wow. is from Princeton. He was the valedictorian of his um, of his senior class and an all male Jesuit um, class. Um, he experienced all sorts of racism, um, you know, in school. He's experienced all sorts of uh, racism um, since he's been uh, since he's been out. His background, his PhD is in religious studies, um, but but it's more philosophy, Africana studies. Um, so his book is yeah. called Hope Draped in Black, and he studies how different. Um, uh, how different um, cultures actually hold hope in the wake of um, in the wake of oppression and in the wake of um, you know um, all of this kind of um, uh, discrimination. So he's very um, you know he's very accomplished in his own right. My daughter studied engineering. Uh, she's an electrical engineer by training. Um, she went to Spelman College, which is a, a historically um, black college and university, one of uh, for women in Atlanta, Georgia, and Georgia Tech. Um, so she has her engineering degree. She has an MBA. Uh, she also has a master's in information systems. Um, and she works for me. She's worked for the company for 11 years. She's the chief operating officer and she will become president um, come um, January, 2023. I'm still gonna maintain um, chief executive officer. She experienced the same kinds of things that I experienced in the workplace. Um, she left the, you know, as a black woman engineer, um, very lonely for her, lots of microaggressions. Um, so no, I have not seen uh, that change. Um, the the co companies that we work with, we work with 
large companies, tech companies, LinkedIn, Facebook, um, Activision. These are our clients. Our clients include Shell, Bank of America. You know, so we have large Fortune 500 clients and we listen to the voices of uh, black and brown employees. And no, they are not experiencing anything different than what I experienced um, back in the 70s. Um, it is the same. I write about that in Black Fatigue, and that's why we are fatigued. When I first heard young people telling me that they were fatigued, I, I would say, I would tease, and I would say, you know, you're, you're 25 years old. How are you fatigued already? You know, and they would look at me, you know, like, okay, we respect you, you know, older woman, but, you know, we know that we're fatigued. And so that's what really um, um, sparked me to write that book, because I'm saying, you know, if, if folks are fatigued at 25 and, you know, 30 years old, um, and I've been doing this now for over three decades. I mean, something has to change. Well, you know, then, then you know, the murder of George Floyd, and then there was this um, racial reckoning, if you will, and these big companies recognizing and talking about that they were going to put emphasis on uh, racial justice, you know, in the workplace. That's our next book, by the way. It's called Racial Justice at Work. It comes out February 2023. Yeah. Um, um, Practical um, Solutions for Systemic Change is the subtitle of that book. Okay. Uh, and um, so, so no, you know, it, it, people talked about racial justice. When we started to do racial justice work in these corporations, all sorts of pushback. You're making people feel uncomfortable. We don't want to hear this. Um, you know, why do you talk about a white supremacy culture? That, that doesn't make us feel good. Um, and so, mm -hmm. as you may know, in the United States, um, there has even been legislation to um, stop diversity training that makes people feel uncomfortable. Um, there has been, there's a lot of political rhetoric about uh, there is no such thing as systemic racism because we talk about this as being a system that is ingrained in how uh, organizations uh, and, and how people operate. And it's an operating system that across the world, not just in the United States, that white is superior, right? And the ways of white people are superior um, than the ways of other groups. We write about this in our new book, in the new book. I say our new book because it's written by me and 13 members of my team. I want to amplify the voices of younger people. So there's chapters written by them as well. Mm. And there's this concept called epistemicide. And epistemicide is the killing of the knowledge of other cultures. And so uh, when you think about ways of healing, you know, and mm -hmm. when you think about ways of leading, and when you think about all of those different cultural norms and, and different cultural ways that have been uh, that 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 white people try to uh, eliminate in preference for this Eurocentric way of of um, of operating epistemicide. And so people now and I'm seeing a lot of younger people now who are coming forward and are saying, you know, we need to get back to some of our indigenous ways of thinking and being. Um, I know that in, in my just my personal life, trying to be somebody and trying to take on the culture and, and suppress my own culture as being something that's not as good as, mm. as opposed to the notion that we all have something to contribute and the idea of, of bringing different ways and different cultures together to make something even better as opposed to squelching one or saying that one is not the right way. So this idea that there's only one right way. So no, we have not. So, you know, when people say, oh yes, we've made progress. Okay, sure. United States had an African-American president, but we paid for it. We've paid dearly for it. We're paying for it now, right? Mm -hmm. That's because of racism, right? Mm -hmm. 
So, yeah, so I, I, you know, you said this is straight talk. And so straight talk for me and I will say it I, and I, I've said it in other venues. No. And that's why I wrote Black Fatigue, because the chapter three in Black Fatigue is then is now. You know, if you look at if you look at the statistics in the United States, um, I know your your program is is global, but that's why I'm saying I've concentrated more on the U.S. statistics. If you look at right. those statistics, nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. You touched on a really important point, and I'll try and draw parallels to it. Um, when you think about uh, privilege or white privilege or white supremacy, it's a really interesting one. Can I share a brief example with you as to what happened about a week ago? So I was, uh, I was in India for a tour. I took a bunch of executives from the UK and Europe to India because there was a free trade agreement that was due to be signed between the United Kingdom and India. Of course, you know, um, countries want to trade and the, the UK, if you are aware, went through something called Brexit. And we're sort of uh, trying to figure out how we, right. we set up new trade agreements with the rest of the world. So it's an interesting yeah. time. So the power yeah, your, politics, your politics are very interesting as well. <laughs> yes. Tell me about it. And so uh, I, was, I was in India. And is, if you've ever been to India, you, you will know that it is a, a roller coaster of emotions, right? And I, I, I say it's dichotomies oxymorons and contradictions all piled together and thrown into a tasty biryani of some sort (laughs) and meshed together. And it's very hard to figure out what's going on in there. You can't really figure out the spices and you come out emphatic, you come out confused, you come out uh, inspired. Uh, But of course it is emotionally charged. I mean, India is emotionally charged. And one thing happened, there was a particular session where we all had to give feedback. And the majority of the people who turned up to this envoy were white, okay? A few non-white people, or some from an Indian background, actually no, no one who was black, which is interesting, again, uh, this tells you a lot about the UK and other European countries. And these were leaders, these were, uh, in fact, in fact, correct, there was one, sorry, one individual, uh, African-American woman, uh, who, who I won't name here, but she knows who she is when she watches this. She was the sole black representative. Yes, because she's the one who caused the biggest stir in a panel that I was running and spoke her mind. And the rest who were from India, who are leading the DNI charge, were very timid and changed their stories to some extent. They were almost fearful of being mm-hmm. open and honest and straight talking. Okay, mm-hmm. The point I'm making, the real point I'm making is we did this feedback session and one individual is a white man. And, you know, I respect him for being courageous, broke down in the feedback. So the first part of the feedback was, you know, it was a great trip, India's going to be great, blah, 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 all that sort of good stuff. And then he broke down and kudos to him, said, look, I am ashamed because I used to make jokes and um, essentially take the mickey out of Indians when I was young. And you and I both know what the subtext is there. And it's, that's a really nice way of putting it, of course. And he was you know, admittedly, he was very upset and sad and so on. And as I was experiencing that, and I was reading Black Fatigue, I was reading the summary, I haven't read the whole book. You said something in this book, which is very important. You talked about the difference between non-racists and anti-racists. Okay. It's a really important point. And I haven't raised this before, but you got me thinking. So explain to me what you, what you mean by non-racist. And then what is an anti-racist? So in the context of this man, white man, saying, wow, this was an amazing trip. Oh, my God, I feel so embarrassed because when I was young, I did bad things. 
And of course, we all, hug, you know, people, not we all, but people hugged one another and there was sympathy and empathy. And I don't, you know, I don't know, I have mixed feelings because there's a lot of work to be done and it, you can't just wash it away with a, a you know, admitting a fault. It, there's a lot more work that needs to be done. And I said, when you go back home, when you go back home, you and all the others who were crying, or white men, by the way, mm -hmm. funnily enough, who were crying <laughs> and upset, go home and tell your friends and your family what happened here and tell them every time they do something that you shouldn't, you think they shouldn't be doing, you need to stop them. You need to stop them and you need to change behaviors. That's your duty now. Otherwise, this would be a really good chat, good conversation, good emotions, and you're not going to affect any real change. So that's an experience I want to share with you because this non-racist, anti-racist thing is bugging me. Tell me what you mean by it and tell us what you think we could do. What message do we need to get across on this show? Yeah, so thank you for that. I think you you gave the example um, there. You know, so the non-racist is somebody who, um, you know, avows they're not a racist. Um, they may apologize. They may feel, you know, guilty, you know, um, about it. Um, but they're not going to do, they're not going to change their behavior. You're not going to do anything differently, right? Except that they're going to feel good that they can say that they're not a racist. And anti-racist, I didn't, I did not, um, I did not, um, come up with this distinction. Uh, Ibram X. Kendi um, stamped from the beginning and some of his books um, he uses right. and, and other, and other uh, authors and um, experts in this field. But the anti-racist is somebody who actually will speak up when the jokes are being told. The anti-racist is somebody who will be an ally, um, who will um, you know, uh, speak out, who will not be afraid to take action. So if you're a leader, so if leaders are listening um, to this, you know, a, a way to show that you um, are, um, are an anti-racist would be to set those policies and, and examine those policies and ask the question, who's harmed by these policies? Mm -hmm. Who benefits from these policies? Um, you know, when we think about, um, for example, I'm working with a, a large healthcare system right now, and uh, healthcare in the United States right now, they're being really pressured or, or financially. And so we have a major contract with them, but they've come back and asked us to, you know, reduce the dot and all of that, da da da. You know, that's fine. But when I look at the salaries of some of the executives that I'm working with, they're making over a million dollars, a million and a half, two million dollars. I mean, that's their, you know, annual annual salaries. And the we know that um, from studies that many the Fortune 500 in the United States, those CEOs make 254 times more than the lowest worker. Correct. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, and you know who the lowest workers are? The lowest workers are disproportionately black and brown people. That's right. Right. So this is getting to your diversity uh, economics, right? So, yeah. so what, rather than lay off people at the lower level, right? And we're seeing all these layoffs now, right? Yeah. Why can't these CEOs take a cut in salary to keep people yeah. working? Yeah. Why do you need to make two, three, four, five million, you know, whatever you're making with all of your bonuses and whatnot? That's all very nice. Yeah. But if we used more of an abundance mentality, and if we used more of a, 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 a mentality of, of a sharing, if, we, if you will, um, so that we all benefit, um, that's the way, you know, for me, that's what equity is all about, you know, so that right. we, 
everybody benefits, right? So that would be an example of an action. That So that would be being an, a, a, an anti-racist, anti so whatever you want to call it, because you're taking action now, because you're seeing the inequity. Yeah. yeah. And you're seeing how you contribute to the inequity, right? You are you are this, you know, big, um, you know, CEO who's making, you know, millions and millions of dollars. Uh, and now you're saying, but I have to lay you off, um, you know, person who's only making you know, twenty dollars an hour. You could you could pay their salary five times over yourself and not be impacted by your by your um, by your wealth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, so that's, and a, that, that's an example. Yeah. That's a great point. And I just want to touch on that again. So. On this show, we've talked, uh, you know, extensively about this concept of conscious capitalism, right? And it's got different, it's got different um, uh, branding around it as well. But the idea is that there is a potential future, we hope, where CEOs of the largest companies, uh, through moral changes, ethical changes, behave differently and do some of what you've just shared salary sacrifices, salary optimizations, reallocation of how much you earn, sensible salaries, fair salaries, and so on and so forth. But of course, it doesn't really happen. I mean, it's, it, they're, you know, I would say outlier examples, maybe once in a, in a blue moon, you'll see an example of some CEO saying, everyone earns the same, or here is how much I earn. I seriously don't need this much money. Let me go save some jobs by doing X, Y, and Z. All of this has been going on for a while. For at least two and a half years, I've been running the show. And, and actually, COVID was a major enabler, let's be honest, right? I mean, COVID, COVID was horrible, but a lot of good things have come out of COVID in that um, certain marginalized communities, people, even people with disabilities, a great example, there are 1.7 billion people with disabilities in the world, 200 million, for example, just in India, and you never see them. They're hidden away in houses because it's, it's embarrassing for the families. It's a stigma to be disabled, it's horrible. And so when COVID happened, they, you know, they reconnected uh, literally with their laptops and their PCs and started to do work as freelancers. Prior to that, they were totally disregarded because now they had this facade. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't really tell if the person was enabled, disabled, uh, which background they were from. So COVID has done good things, but I just feel like there's a lot of rhetoric and it feels like there's an advantage yeah, on, on the side of large corporations where we were talking about this earlier with Diversity Economics Institute. What we're doing is analyzing the DEI strategies of the world's largest companies. And surprise, surprise, they look fantastic, 40, 50, 60 pages, aligned to ESG, aligned to SDG goals, and so on and so forth. But when you get to the core of it and you try and figure out how you're actually driving inclusion, it's a vacuum. You know, or there's, there's like this huge... Uh, you know, Delta. Uh, and I want to ask you, because going back to your company, uh, it's amazing what you're doing. Uh, tell, tell us how you refer to your company. It's the, the Winters Group, correct? Okay. Yes, and yes, the Winters Group. Mm-hmm. The Winters Group. You've been running it for 11 years, you said, or longer? Uh, 38 years. 38, 38 years. Eight years. Okay. Yes, almost Sorry. 40 years, almost four decades. Right, okay. <laughs> so you're 39 do- years in March. Right. Your daughter, sorry, your daughter got involved uh, 11 years, 11 years ago. Yeah. Correct. Got it. So you've been running for nearly four decades. Christ. Okay. So, um, and you're saying you haven't seen the change that you expect to see. Okay. Let's leave it right. at that. Now, let me ask you some hard questions and just give straight answers if you could. The clients you mentioned, I won't repeat all of them, all the big names, the tech names and so on. When you walk in generally, what do you end up seeing? Like, you, you know, there's stuff that you're like, here we go again. Here we go again. What do you see again and again and again and again that you believe hasn't changed? 
uh, opulence, um, white men uh, in charge. Um, yeah, you said straight. You said short answers: opulence and white men in charge. You see, you know these beautiful palatial kinds of uh, buildings and edifices, and you see white men in charge. Okay, and you very um, and, and see very few, except in technology. You will see a lot of um, Asian people from Asian yeah. Indians in technology. Yeah. Um, you will see a lot of women in um, the head of human resources is practically always a woman. Yeah, the head of diversity is practically always a person of color. Yeah. So that's what I see over and over again. And I see performative actions. They're performative. And when you read those reports that you're talking about, those diversity reports, they're performative. We formed a diversity council. We de developed employee affinity groups. Um, yeah. Yeah. We have mentoring programs. Uh, we recruit at these colleges and universities. All performative, all actions that don't lead to changing the, um, the system. Bang on. Great. Thank you for being honest and straight talking. My next question then is, are there any um, bright spots? Are you seeing outside of those roles that you just alluded to? Are you seeing anything that gives you a little bit of hope? I'm seeing um, Gen Z's um, not standing for it. I'm seeing Gen Z's standing up um, and, and, and saying and not being and unapologetically um, bringing themselves into the workplace, even though the big corporates say uh, we want people to bring their whole selves to work. Uh, they really don't yeah. mean that. Um, yeah. But I'm seeing that the younger people are challenging that uh, and, yeah. and uh, you know, and doing that. Uh, so I am seeing the activism among young people who are not afraid, you know, the great resignation, right? Not afraid to walk out and just yeah. say, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to take this um, anymore. I'd rather be, I'd rather be a part of the gig economy. You know, I'd rather drive Uber and, uh, you know, do some other things to, to make a living than be subjected to um, the um, capitalistic kind of um, traditional um, in, inequitable uh, organizations. Yeah, that's 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 a positive sign, because those are the future generations that will hopefully lead companies or drive change in some some mm -hmm. sort of way. Going back to then another piece, which is um, pragmatic actions, or when you talk about, you know, those sort of the posturing in the strategies, I see that all through to your point, performative, as you call it. And I also see a big problem around the metrics are outcome driven. So we, yesterday we had five black women. Now we've got 27. Oh, okay. Now change will happen. Of course, it doesn't work that way because it's a much deeper, more systemic issue, which is not being measured. So compensation, incentive schemes, um, responsibilities, budget. So for DEI, for example, I think there was a stat I just saw the other day. It was shocking. Something around 35 plus percent of DEI leaders in the last couple of years have resigned from their positions because they're apathetic, disenfranchised. They think this is absolute bullshit. Uh, and they've been given the jobs. And I think the first you know, couple of years, you're excited about it. You've got a chief next to your name. You're like, screw it. I'm going to take the job. Going to get a big salary. I'll get some prominence. But when you get into the system, you realize, I haven't got any budget, not really. I haven't got resources, not the talent that I need to drive change. I really don't have a voice or a meaningful seat at the table. I'm sort of falling off uh, the, the, the seat. It's like a you know superficial virtual seat at the table. And all of these factors bring us back to uh, the, the, the fact that, I guess, 
how are we going to move this now? How are we going to move the needle on this? And I'm, I'm going to just say one thing. Sometimes in life, and we're going, to, we're going to campaign as hard as we can, but sometimes in life, you know, there's a generation. I call them the Rigidites, like the Luddites. You just can't shake them. That's why Kodak went down. That's why Blockbuster went down to some extent. You just can't change people. And this is such an issue. This is about superiority. It's a, it is, how the hell are you going to remove this? I mean, I give you a te- an example of even caste systems in some parts of the world create superiority. When you and I look the same, I find an excuse to discriminate. I find an excuse to be more you know, um, superior than you. I mean, society does it in all ways, uh, shapes and forms. You know, it's just human beings. Do you think, do you, th- I mean, if I give you a, if I give you a magic wand, like a, it's a Harry Potter moment, I don't know if you want to call it that. And you have the ability to affect change right now. Honestly, what would you actually do? I'm thinking workplace because there's so many issues related to yeah, yeah, yeah. government. Yeah, well, that's why that's workplace. my that's my sandbox. I, I'm yeah. workplace. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to get into politics and all that. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think that we have to recognize too that oftentimes the people who are put in these positions do not have the qualifications. The chief diversity officers, the people who are they're not qualified to do the to, to do the jobs. And I'm not saying anything against them you know, um, personally at at all. My point is, is that they're often put in the jobs because of their identity. Oh, you're black. Oh, you're Asian. You know, uh, oh, um, you're a person with a disability. So of course you understand these things and you can run this. Um, And all of the other things that you mentioned in terms of uh, not having the resources, um, being expected as one person to change, you know, change the entire, uh, the entire system. And so I, I just wanted to put, put that in. But if I had a if I had a magic wand, um, so the not for profit world, um, the corporate world, they need to work more closely together. The way that the not for profit world um, looks at this work more from a social justice perspective, and this is about justice. This is about um, and liberty and justice for all, as we say in the United States. Um, it is about. Um, it is about humanity. Um, it is it is about what's right. Just because we're all on this planet, you know, together. When you talked about the moral. I saw that in, in some of your writing. You talked about the moral perspective, but the moral and the justice perspective. But there's a little bit of a distinction, and I talk about that in my new book, Racial Justice at Work. You know, mm. and Martin Luther King talked about that. You know, morality is my is my personal kind of sense right. of, of of it, right? Um, uh, justice is really, you know, what, what am I going to, to do about it? Um, and so justice has that, you know, so that, that action piece as well. So I think we need to, for the corporate world to move, I think we need to balance this capitalistic, you know, that bigger is always better. Um, you know, if you don't make the, you know, the profit margins that the um, market was thinking that you should make by the next quarter, then, you know, you're all written up in the newspaper. And so people, so the, the corporate world is still really tied to that capitalistic bottom line. So when you're tied to the capitalistic bottom line, by the very nature of that, you're not always going to be thinking about people, right? You're going to be thinking about the, the, the money. And so until we can change that, change that dynamic, and there have been, there have been attempts, you know, to do so people planet profit, you know, and, you know, some of the work that, that, that you're obviously doing. And I think that that is the work that needs to be done. The integration right. of the idea of, you know, we can, you know, there be corporations, right. That, that look at purpose as well as profit. So until we're able to, um, 
balance or integrate that it's all important. I don't think we're going to, because that's the fundamental sort of structural sort of mindset shift that is going to be needed for this work to be sustained. So I'm working with a client right now, and I mentioned this client earlier, and okay, so now they're in financial difficulty. So what's the first thing that's going to go? This work, right? And so if we continue to do, and that's what I've seen over the 40 years. Mm-hmm. That's what I've seen when the, when the economy is great. Oh, there's, there's budget for this work. Yeah, let's do it. When the economy is bad, this work gets like completely, um, you know, completely shelled. Um, so, or maybe not completely shelled, but watered down and, you know, all of that. And so that's what I think. If I had a magic wand, I would change the mindsets of those in power so that they could see from an abundance mindset rather than a scarcity mindset, from an asset mindset rather than a deficit mindset, from a humanistic um, uh, mindset, um, you know, rather than a, a you know, a, a capitalistic or money mindset, um, that this is that we need to, we need to pay attention to all of this. And it's all important. And there are ways, and this is what you're doing with, with your diversity economic, um, you know, institute, there are ways to do this where everybody benefits. Mm. Right mm. now we have obviously, you know, we have the S and M. So if I had a magic wand, it would be to change that or to shift that mindset to, to understand that bigger is not always better. Um, and that capitalism is not always good. Mm. Mm. And that's beautiful, nicely summarized. Have you seen um, any changes going back to that point? There are some CEOs of companies, especially in America, who are, uh, they're not white. You know, they're people, people with Indian-Asian backgrounds. Most of them are CEOs of these large tech companies these days, Microsoft and, right. um, yep. you know, uh, Twitter and even, even non-tech companies. Well, not Twitter anymore. <laughs> well, it, previously I was going to say was yeah. Twitter. <laughs> And Parag was running it. And, and you know, um, Adobe, Novartis, FedEx on the non-tech side, and the list goes on and on. Are you seeing, some of these might be your clients, are you seeing any material differences when a CEO who's non-white comes and uh, runs the show and takes the helm? Not at all. And let me tell you why. Even though they might want to, they have to answer to the shareholders. And who are the shareholders? And if you want to keep your job, right? And so they, I'm sure that, so the system is so entrenched. Half the system is just so entrenched that that one person, even though that one person, you know, uh, presumably has the power, right? To make these, these changes, that one person really doesn't. They're answering to shareholders. They're answering to the community. They're answering to the customers. Mm. And to the board, I guess. Yeah, the shareholders and board, right? That's what I meant. But I, I'm sorry, I was including board and the shareholders. Yeah, absolutely, the board. That's actually who I was thinking of was the board of directors. Yeah. So here's something and, to think about. Here's something to think about because we've been talking about CEO diversity and C-suite diversity. We don't often. I mean, I guess you do. There's no doubt. You're going to tell me, of course, I do. Af. We don't talk a lot about and write a lot about board diversity. Although the boards of certain companies have. Uh, instigated and mandated to the CEO, you must, you must sort out your C-suite. It's totally not diverse. Fix it. But of course, the boards of these companies, and I have, no, I have no data right now, but I will. I wonder if the boards of these companies are diverse in the first place. Question mark. No, the, no, the, they're, they're not. But that, but, but that is a shift. I mean, that is something that um, that companies work on, I and mean, that is something that companies report on. And so, there's um, here in the United States, there's something called Diversity Inc. 
and people uh, vie to get on the diversity in top 50 list right. of companies. Yes. Yes. And one of the criteria to be on the top 50 diversity list is your board, your board is board diversity. But but it's still, you know, it's still board diversity is still not very good. And the same brown and black people circulate um, from, on all the boards. So there's a small group of people who get to get on all these boards. Yeah. Gosh, you're lucky you haven't come to the UK because you'll probably write another <laughs> book after racial justice. <laughs> that's another conversation. Right. So, no, um, that's yeah. No, we have people on our team who are you know who are from the UK. And, oh, really? So, yeah. So okay. yeah, because yeah. we do yeah. our we do work globally. I've done work in the UK. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is it is it's really really quite astonishing. And so as, as we come to a close, and there's so much more we can discuss. A couple more things I just wanted to touch on really was. Coming out of the workplace just for a moment and thinking about um, policy and I, not too much into it, but a little bit. And I want to, again, get your opinion, your four decades, because as a recipient of this experience, the negative experience around being, a, you know, a non-white, for example, or being a person of color, or however we define it these days, you know, it's, it's hard to keep up. And how's that, how's that changed for you? So do you think that, you know, social policy um, where you live. Where do you live, by the way? Which part of America are you in? I'm in North Carolina now, but I'm from Buffalo, New York originally and lived in Washington, D.C. for a long time. But right now I'm in, um, I'm part-time in North Carolina and part of the time in, in, Bar- in Barbados, which was oh, a British. Okay. <laughs> that, that's interesting in itself. That's another it conversation is. around the Commonwealth. It is, yes. <laughs> that's another common, a Commonwealth-related conversation because I believe it's going to disintegrate, but that's another thing. It, I do too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's just, you know, it's just going to happen. Uh, but, the, but, but you know, that's the great example of colonization, right? All of the, all of the, um, all of the islands that, uh, the Caribbean islands that uh, were under British um, control for so many years. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, so, so, you know, my point really was, if you look at policy again and the shifts that you may or may not be following in policy, are you seeing any um, any bright spots there? Because, of course, look, we know it's awful. We know there's a lot of change that still needs to happen. I know we know that. And we've got this across in this show. But if someone is watching it, it might be thinking, oh, my God, why are you guys so negative? You know, you're just talking about all the things that are going wrong. What about all the things that are going right? The fact that you're on this show speaking openly and so on. So let's give those people a little bit of uh, hope. Uh, is there anything you're seeing in social policy around you that gives you hope? And if the answer is no, that's fine. It's no, because of course you have your elections coming up, your midterms have just finished and we'll figure that out in a moment. But uh, you know, 2024 is the big shift. Who knows where that's going to go, but any, any views or any color on that would be appreciated. Yeah. You know what? Uh, yeah. I guess I have talked about based on the, your um, questions uh, because I really do want to get it across, you know, to the viewers that, um, We've got a long, long way to go. We have not made, you know, the progress that we've made has been, you know, minuscule. And now, and now we're seeing, you know, regressive regression. You know, think about here in the United States, the um, uh, Roe v. Wade. You know, the the right to, you know, to reproductive rights and whatnot. I mean, that's that's uh, regressive and uh, other things. So I think, um, I think I always have hope. I, you know, I have to. You know, I, I'm a very, I'm a very hopeful and a very positive person, a very hopeful person, or I wouldn't continue to continue to do this work. So yes, and so what what I see on the policy, um, I see on the policy level right now. I see on the policy re- level is just um, the fight to to maintain, you know, those policies that um, and and the progress that we have made, um, you know, with with policy. So there's a lot of that. Let's let, let's try to not lose any any more. 
uh, one of our Black Supreme Court justices, um, Clarence Thomas, said, now that we've looked at Roe v. Wade, we ought to look at things like same-sex marriage, and we ought to look at, you know, these other, other legislation that has been passed um, uh, r- relative to, uh, to social justice. So I think right now uh, we are in a place, uh, we're, there's just culture wars that are, that are going on. I mean, Donald Trump announced that he's going to run for president, you know, again, and we know um, the hate that's spewed by his, uh, by his following. So I think that right now we're in a, we're in a uh, what's this a de- really de- a real defensive stance of defending the liberties um, and the rights um, for those who have been marginalized that that we've had. I, I'm sorry to say, after all these years, I, mean, I feel like I'm back in the '60s, you know, somehow. So um, mm-hmm. I, I think that yes, there are many of those who are fighting for um, you know justice, who are um, who are not allowing or, or who are not sitting still. Uh, for that the hate. Uh, but but you you spoke about your fourth pillar, you know, being humanity. And I think that's what that's what we need in this world. We need we need that sense of, you know, we're all in this together to create a world that works for all. And we're always going right. to struggle at that, right? We're never going to quite get there because there's always going to be these tensions. But it seems right now that we're so far you know, from from where we are, you know, with, I remember, you know, songs of the 60s, like what the world needs now is love, sweet love. That's the only thing. There's just too little of, right? I'm thinking we need some of that, you know, and, and that's what, um, and, and we and we see it. I mean, you know, we see people who um, uh, understand um, that uh, the commonality that we have as, as, as humans, as we're trying to, you know, um, as we're trying to live, you know, our best way, you know, with climate, you know, the war, and, you know, in Ukraine and all of that. It's just, we're just now, I think, just seeing um, so much negativity and so much that would be anti-inclusion, anti-diversity, anti-anti, you know, um, humanity. Look at immigration policies and mm. xenophobia, anti-Semitism. You know, I mean, it's just, it just seems to be rampant right now. So it is hard to speak positively but I always have hope. I always mm. have hope. Beautiful. And we have to have hope, otherwise we wouldn't be having this dialogue in the first place if we didn't think we could create change right. by expressing exactly. ourselves in a straight-talking way, right? I mean, that's the whole point. So, yes. so this is this is incredible. The, the, the book in Feb, you're launching, oh, you're releasing Racial Justice. Well, just give mm-hmm. me that title again, Racial Justice, and there's some subtext, there's a, a subheading. Yeah, it's called um, Racial Justice um, at Work. And I'm going to put the background on right now so that you can see it. Beautiful. Um, Practical Solutions for Systemic Change. And it's written by myself and the Winters Group team. And so, and it really is practical. We actually, in this book, speak to very specific actions that people can take to uh, improve and to enhance uh, and and to look at the workplace from a justice-centered perspective. Yeah. That's beautiful. And I'd love to get you back on the show when you launch the book, uh, because we're all about trying to promote authors and, and giving them a, the, the amplification they deserve, of course. And we'll push this out to all of our communities. We have about 15,000 subscribers right now, growing rapidly, and they come from different backgrounds all over the world. So this is a, a global message. I'd love to get you back on the show. If you're free at that point, I'm sure you'll be busy campaigning. And let's hope, fingers crossed, uh, we are making you know steady progress over the coming weeks and months. I'd love to collaborate with you actually through Diversity Economics Institute because we've 
got to work together. Right? You're way ahead of that journey. So there's a lot that, you know, I can learn and we can learn and, and support your cause. Because I do believe no matter what happens, what I'm fed up of is silo-based organizations. You know, we're all on the same journey. It's the same mission. Yes, you have to make money. You have to pay bills. That's just part and parcel of it. But we must, we must join forces together to create a exactly. multiplier effect. You have yes. to. Otherwise, you, you have know, to. you've got these, this, this, this kind of sporadic incremental work going on uh, in the trenches and it's totally you know uh, sort of missed the mark when it comes to seismic change we can never make seismic change it's always incremental and it's because we're not together and Mm -hmm. I know that's a byproduct of what human beings are like but I think there's an opportunity for us to change and I'm banking on Gen Z honestly I am banking on the next generation yes we can't figure it out you know uh, then hopefully the next generation can right. can and we, we're laying, laying the foundations i mean you're laying the foundations for your for your daughter you know that's incredible what a fantastic gift you have that you've got your daughter involved in something you're doing that is so meaningful and will create change in in society and make us live in a more cohesive um exactly you know, yeah. part of part of our human existence so listen it's been a real privilege, uh, Mary Francis. Thank you for coming on my show. I really appreciate it. Thank Take you. care. Um, keep that, uh, you know, keep that mission going. May that force be with you. And uh, we'll stay connected. And thanks to all of my viewers. Click subscribe on the bottom right somewhere or left or right uh, of this YouTube channel and support the cause that is, uh, you know, the, the, the Winters Group and, of course, the Diversity Economics Institute agenda. So diversityeconomicsinstitute.org. And what is your website? Um, Mary Francis. Winters Group, www.wintersgroup.com. Wintersgroup.com. That's easy. Thank you so much. It's been a real privilege. Uh, Be well, stay well, keep smiling, and keep hope. Keep hope. Thank you. Always. Always.